We are back. Let's do a few miscellaneous uh, scientific type items that are sort of good news. The December 26th tsunami that killed more than 250,000 people in southern Asia and Africa has apparently brought India a rather peculiar windfall. Tons of titanium ore worth untold millions of dollars were deposited along more than 300 miles of shoreline. These deposits, as high as 10 feet in some places, were left on sand dunes about a mile inshore. The Times of India speculates that more than 40 million tons landed on the coast. Now, most of the world's high-grade titanium is mined from coastal deposits called beach placers, using a modern version of panning for gold. Uh, titanium alloys are a favorite of the aerospace industry. They note that this tsunami-dumped ore could help India keep up with a growing demand for the metal long into the future. Closer to home, it appears that in San Francisco Bay, there's good news for people that like to go to Fisherman's Wharf or people that like to eat crab. The Dungeness crabs in the estuaries of San Francisco Bay are making a comeback. After two decades of low numbers, the population from 2000 to 2004 was six times greater than from 1980 to 1999. Uh, we actually have something that's going up said Chuck Armour, operations manager for the Fish and Games Central Valley Bay Delta branch in Stockton. Remember a couple of decades back, the Dungeness crab levels had, had, had crashed so precipitously that they were having to get them all from the Humboldt area up north. So uh, some good news. New Scientist magazine notes that about uh, the possible connection between the MRR shots and autism. Parents need have no more fears about the triple vaccine for measles, mumps, and rubella after a study of more than 30,000 children in Japan. Uh, they note should put the final nail in the coffin of the claim that uh, MMR is responsible for an apparent rise in autism. The study in Japan shows that in the city of Yokohama, the number of children with autism continued to rise after the MMR vaccine was replaced with single vaccines. The findings are resoundingly negative said Hideo Honda of the Yokohama Rehabilitation Center. And some good news for the, from the hard sciences, where people have been looking for things they haven't been able to find. Astronomers think they may have discovered the first known starless galaxy. A team from Cardiff University in the UK was studying uh, some hydrogen gas in the Virgo cluster of galaxies. That's our, our local group, uh, 50 million light years away, and found a big mass of gas that has no stars in it. So researchers theorize the cloud is made up almost entirely of dark matter, a mysterious invisible substance that science knows exists only because of the way it affects ordinary matter. Black holes were weird, and this may be weirder still. And on the geologic uh, evolutionary biologist front, it appears that um, some fossils have turned up in Nova Scotia, dating back 350 million years that uh, appear to be footprints showing that the creatures that first dragged themselves out of the sea maybe 20 million years before that, um, long thought to have very primitive feet, actually appear to have some pretty sophisticated feet with, uh, with five toes. Kind of a surprise. Dr. Spencer Lucas told the New York Times they're not just walking on stubby toes. They've got claws. They've got long, thin fingers. Evolution, he said, appears to have been moving more briskly than scientists suspected. Of course, that's if you believe in all that evolution stuff. And uh, in a bizarre story that I just want to mention in passing, it appears that uh, George Bush has nominated Paul Wolfowitz to head the World Bank, something which was labeled as approaching slapstick incompetence 
per Sebastian Malaby in the Washington Post. But I would know that also on the short list for head of the World Bank is U2 lead singer Bono. And I'm not making that up. We'll come back to that one. All right, as promised on last week's program, we're going to have some input from our aviation correspondent, Vladimir Zaravika. Welcome back, Vlado. Thank you, Doug. Good to be here. Now, uh, I, 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 I teased our listeners last week with the suggestion that you might have a novel perspective on this controversy about the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. Yes, I do. Okay. Uh, now, well, why don't you give that to us? Well, first of all, I spent uh, nearly three years flying uh, in rural Alaska, which is actually most of Alaska. A mm -hmm. few people realize the actual gargantuan size of that state, and I think one of the reasons for it is because on all of our old school maps of the United States, Alaska would be a small inset in the corner. <laughs> and uh, right. it's an issue of scale and perspective. Well, California is 100 and what? 158,000 square miles. How big is Alaska? Over 650,000 square miles. So over four Californias. Yes. Okay. To give people a perspective on that, if you took a uh, scale map of Alaska to the United States and you placed it over it, the bulk of Alaska would fit from the Rocky Mountains westward, covering from Canada down to Mexico. And the Aleutian chain would stretch all the way out to Hawaii. Wow. Yes. And within that area there are only 650,000 people or so and only I believe five Walmarts and four of those are in Anchorage within 30 miles of each other. <laughs> well Alaska it's got fewer people I guess than the city of San Francisco then. Yes indeed. It's a lot of wide open spaces. It is mostly wide open spaces. And and your contention is that this tundra that is that is on the north slope where the oil is 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 an area that's not really necessarily all that critical as an as a wildlife refuge. Uh, this is true. When when I went up to Alaska, I had this romanticized vision of what uh, flying over the tundra would be. I quickly realized that it was flat, frozen, treeless swamp. The, the tundra stretches uh, pretty much across the entire north slope of Alaska to, again, perspective from about Idaho all the way to Washington and then all the way down the western slope and the western hump of Alaska. So from about Canada down to Mexico for hundreds of miles inward would be a very similar open, flat tundra. Lots and, and lots of space. Flat treeless frozen swamp correct so there are some muskox and a few things up there that constitute the wildlife but it's your belief that if for example we were to give in to the oil interests and of course we we're, we're fond of bashing the oil interests on this program i think they deserve all that, that we can dish out but your belief is if i understand it correctly that we might just want to buy some good wildlife refuge a little bit down the pike somewhere else and maybe giving this up wouldn't be a big deal this is true the uh anwar represents about four percent of the land in all of alaska take that four percent pick it up move it 300 miles in any direction plop it down double it in size the muskox and caribou are not going to know the difference, and it's all the same, and there is a lot of land out there. Well, this is a novel perspective. Maybe this is something we can be less upset about than otherwise uh, we would be. I remember one evening flying from the village of Chivak to Bethel in western Alaska, and I was by myself. I had dropped off that's, my that's passengers. Toward the, toward the Bering Strait. I was going from the Bering Strait in towards, inner, uh, towards the interior. Okay. It was after dark. 
and I uh, punched up the Loran, the old version of the GPS system, mm -hmm. if you will, and I noticed that the nearest village was 70 miles away. I realized at that point there were no other planes up because I was I was flying I was the last flight in. There wasn't a human being within seventy miles of me in any direction, and the nearest village had about three hundred people. There's not very many places in the United States or on the planet where you can be the only person in a seventy mile radius, and that was just one small little sliver of the tundra. You can pick up Anwar, move it any direction within the state; it will make no difference. Well. Since I think the bad guys are going to get their way on this one, uh, maybe we should start looking to see what we can salvage out of the deal and get some land somewhere else. That would be my suggestion. We would like to editorialize that we, we don't think it's sensible to go drilling necessarily in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge when you can save an equal amount of fossil fuel by having three more miles per gallon. Something, a, point, a point for the SUV driver, I would say. That would make the whole problem go away a lot easier. And speaking of the SUV driver, I, I just bought a new car, bought a new Subaru. Um, have always driven cars that got, uh, you know, 25, 28, 30 miles per gallon. It seems like the sensible thing to do. And it seems to me that uh, the cars out there on the market right now are not getting as good as mileage as you'd expect. My, my Subaru, of course, is four-wheel drive, but uh, I'm only getting 25 per gallon, and I, I'm, I think that I should do better. Especially since gas prices are uh, constantly on the rise. Well, I think that if gas gets to be four, five bucks a gallon, uh, in addition to entitling us to laugh at the drivers of the Hummer out there getting, what, eight miles per gallon? We laugh at them anyway. Yeah, I don't know what it is. It appears to be, I think, small penis syndrome is all I can figure. Uh. Yes, for that car, yes. <laughs> We're looking forward to having a little bit of fun with the fact they're opening a Hummer dealership here in Sacramento. The Hummer, which the uh, headline, I think, in the San Francisco Chronicle two months ago said, Army looking to replace slow, comma, plodding Hummers. Good, good for sales, no doubt. You want to go buy a slow, plodding vehicle. But it looks so cool. <laughs> oh, it, it sure does. Actually, you want to take an assignment? It's not aviation, but I got an assignment for you if you want to do it. Most certainly. Find out whether our governor gets a kickback every time he appears in public in a Hummer. You know, he was the first private citizen the GM gave a Hummer to, and he was then the spokesperson for it. So I'm a little suspicious when he turns up on the, on the UC Davis campus with his new hydrogen vehicle, and instead of using a Honda Civic and getting 150 miles per fill-up, he uses a Hummer, which gives you an extended range of exactly 50 miles. I will look into it. All right. Vladimir Zarevika, our special aviation correspondent. Uh, we'll be hearing more from Vlado in the near future. Thanks. Thank you for having me. We promised you on last week's program we'd talk a little bit more about uh, the, the eminent and, and great astrophysicist Hans Bethe, who passed away um, uh, last week. It's a few facts we needed to, to illustrate, I think, a little more clearly. Hans Bethe was, of course, the, the head of theoretical physics in Los Alamos during World War II in, in the Manhattan Project and was instrumental in the development of the world's first atomic bomb. 
Dr. Beta never regretted working on the atomic bomb, noting that uh, there was a concern that the Nazi scientists were trying to achieve it. It turned out later after the war they were not very close, but even the theoretical possibility of Adolf Hitler getting an atomic bomb before the West uh, convinced him that it, you know, had always been the right thing to do. However, after the Cold War had developed, uh, Hans Bethe was instrumental in, in producing several arms control treaties. He most notably led the charge for the 1963 Test Ban Treaty, which to this day protects you and I from above-ground nuclear testing. He was an early and ardent opponent to missile defense system, and in fact was instrumental also in the ABM, Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty of the early 1970s, which served the world extremely well up until last year when the neocons and the Bush administration decided to forsake the treaty with the Russians. And it was Hans Bethe's nemesis, Edward Teller. The men, as we mentioned in last week's program, were, were good friends in their youth and sort of bitter enemies in their old age. It was Edward Teller who led the development of the Lawrence Livermore Laboratory, who carried the day with Ronald Reagan in 1983 and left us saddled with the Star Wars missile defense system, which could never work and will never work, as Hans Bethe pointed out year after year. The Good Doctor was on our short list of interviewees, uh, potential interviewees for this program. In fact, I'm holding in my hand an email that I sent on uh, July 27th to Cornell University, the physics department, requesting the interview. The email back I received said that, uh, Dear Doug, Karen has forwarded me your request to interview Hans Bethe. Unfortunately, given his advanced age, he is 98, he is no longer able to give interviews. Indeed, he sees few people these days. Although he is quite lucid, amazingly so in fact, he is quite fragile. Might I instead recommend another stellar scientist at Cornell, so-and-so. We may actually go to that so-and-so, who I won't name at the time, because um, this is a very, very interesting topic, and I think that, you know, even in a couple segments, we're not going to adequately cover it. I noted, too, with some irony that uh, when the Stockton Record uh, printed the obituary for Hans Bethe, they put <laughs> Edward Teller's picture in his place. Whoops. The LA Times noted uh, after his passing that he had made the discovery of what powered suns it was called the carbon cycle back in 1938. And uh, the night after he made his breakthrough, he went for a stroll with his fiancée, who mentioned how beautiful the stars looked that night. Yes, darling, he is said to have replied, and I'm the only one on Earth who knows how they do it. He was famous to the end for using a slide rule, noting it was accurate enough for the calculations he needed to do. And I must say, uh, it is with some sadness I look back on uh, you know, my slide rule, which I still have and still on occasion will use because in many respects it is vastly superior to the pocket calculator. Still trying to work to, to Richard Feynman. Feynman was a protege of, uh, of Beta, first at the uh, Manhattan Project and later at Cornell. Feynman, after World War II, uh, found himself uh, eligible for the occupation forces in Germany once the uh, atomic bomb, uh, I guess... Uh, deferment passed. And in his book, Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman, he describes how he was working for Hans Bethe at General Electric in Schenectady, New York, when he got the call to report to Albany for a physical. And Feynman did fine on his physical till he came to the last part, the psychiatrists. Feynman had decided, he said, that psychiatrists are fakers, and then he would have nothing to do with them. So he describes sitting there with 12 guys in a room, three psychiatrists examining people at, at desks in front of them, when he gets his turn, psychiatrist, hello, Dick. Who do you work for, Dick? 
do you like your work, Dick? And after three routine questions, hits him with, do you think people talk about you? Sure, Feynman says. When I go home, my mother often tells me how she was telling her friends about me. Psychiatrist scribbles. Do you think people stare at you? Feynman thinks, well, behind me, there's 12 guys, nothing to look at but the three of us. So divide by three. Yeah, four guys are probably looking at me. But to be conservative, he divides by two. Yeah, he says. Maybe two of them are looking at us. Psychiatrist scribbles. Do you ever hear voices in your head? Feynman describes how, well, he can't understand it, but yes, when he's falling asleep sometimes, he does hear the voices of his professors, like, giving lectures. Do you talk to yourself? Yeah. Sometimes when I'm shaving or thinking, once in a while. Psychiatrists keep scribbling. I see you have a deceased wife. Do you talk to her? Feynman is irked, but says, Sometimes when I go up on a mountain and I'm thinking about her, is anyone in your family in a mental institution? Yes, I have an aunt in an insane asylum. Why do you call it an insane asylum? Why don't you call it a mental institution? I thought it was the same thing. Just what do you think insanity is? The psychiatrist asks Feynman angrily. It's a strange and peculiar disease in human beings, he said. There's nothing any more strange or peculiar about it than appendicitis, retorts the psychiatrist. I don't think so, said Feynman. In appendicitis, we understand the causes better and something about the mechanism of it, whereas with insanity, it's much more complicated and mysterious. Psychiatrist asks him to put his palms out, so Feynman puts out one hand, palm up, the other hand, palm down. Psychiatrist asks, turn them over. He then reverses each hand. Well, to make a long story short, they hand him his papers. He gets an N on everything physical and a D in psychiatric. A D meant deficient. Feynman looks down at the paper. It says on it, thinks people stare at him. Thinks people talk about him. Auditory hypnagogic hallucinations. Talks to self. Maternal aunt in mental institution. So Richard Feynman, boy genius of the Manhattan Project, returns to Schenectady and greets Hans Bethe at his desk. Well, Dick, did you pass, says Bethe. Feynman makes a long face and shakes his head slowly. No. Beta, feeling terrible, thinking that they'd surely discovered something serious, says in a concerned voice, What's the matter, Dick? Feynman touches his finger to his forehead. <laughs> Beta says, No. Feynman says, Yes. <laughs> Beta replies, No, and laughs so hard that he, Feynman says the roof of the General Electric Company nearly came off. So Beta thinks it's pretty funny that a guy with a head full of atomic secrets is judged psychiatrically deficient by the United States military. And then Feynman thinks about it and thinks, you know, he better clarify this matter. This might not look good, like he deliberately flunked. So he writes a letter to the draft board. Dear sirs, I do not think I should be drafted because I'm teaching science students. Nevertheless, you may decide that I should be deferred because of the results of my medical report, namely that I'm psychiatrically unfit. I feel that no weight whatsoever should be attached to this report because I consider it to be an error. I'm calling this to your attention because I'm insane enough not to wish to take advantage of it. Sincerely, R.P. Feynman. The result? Deferred. 4F. Medical reasons. Feynman himself went on to win the Nobel Prize and was a bit of a genius. He, he held Hans Bethe in, in awe, noting that he was one of the, the most brilliant minds he'd ever encountered. 
Sorry to say we are out of time. Thanks to our special guest today, Will Durst, who really is America's foremost political comic. And if you'd like to hear more from Mr. Durst, you can do so the next couple nights at the Punchline in Sacramento. We also want to thank John Stauber. We hope that he will be returning to the program, uh, well, probably every couple months in the future. John Stauber is the founder of the Center for Media and Democracy and author of numerous books, which, uh, you know, you probably ought to have on your home bookshelf, the latest of which was Weapons of Mass Deception. That's uh, not to be confused with Danny Schechter's excellent book, Embedded Weapons of Mass Deception. You might want to have both for your home bookshelf. Thanks also to Vladimir Zaravika. And on next week's program, we're going to bring you Dr. Ignacio Chapella, who will be appearing in Davis and Sacramento, uh, in conjunction with the documentary, The Future of Food. I'd like to thank local activist Sandy Weaver for bringing this uh, to our attention. There'll be two events next week where uh, Dr. Chapella will be joining in the panel discussion and the documentary will be screened. The first is on March 31st at the Crest Theater, 1013 K Street. And if you want to see it here, right here in Davis, it's the next night, April 1st, at, at the Veterans Memorial Theater, 203 East 14th Street in Davis. We'll see you next Thursday. This is Radio Parallax. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. And now, stay tuned for Todd.